Okay there, and welcome to episode 25. I have been waiting a while to say that. I know that it's just a number, but when this show first launched earlier this year, I had no idea what direction it would go in. And now it's 25 episodes in, and I have every intention to keep going with it for as long as you enjoy it. So thank you, as always, for hitting that download button and giving this a listen. Well, today continues a series of episodes that celebrate the Halloween season, and I want to begin by suggesting that if you're a first-time viewer of either one of today's two movies, keep in mind this quote from actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. We're speaking of Dracula, directed by Todd Browning and starring Bela Lugosi as the creepy count, and Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, starring Boris Karloff as the pitiful creature constructed by human hands. They were both released by Universal Studios in 1931, so this marks their 90th anniversary. Both films are adapted from 19th century novels by Bram Stoker and Mary Shelley, respectively. And if I may insert a side note here about Frankenstein, that is the name of the scientist who made the creature, not the creature himself. It's Dr. Frankenstein, or for you Mel Brooks fans out there, Frankenstein. So, as we always do, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups of both stories. Then you'll get the spoiler warning as we get into a deeper discussion. Some personal recollections of both films, some thoughts on the appeal for some people of horror movies in general, and what makes the genre something to be embraced, or for some people, something to be avoided. There will be trivia, there will be the poll results from last time, but best of all, I am thrilled to be able to say that I am joined today by Ian Graham from the podcast Cult Connections. He's joining us from Scotland, and I'll be bringing him on very shortly. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank. And this is Silver Screeners. For the record, in these spoiler-free plot setups, I am talking about the 1931 movies, not the books or any other film or stage adaptations. Dracula First, released on Valentine's Day of 1931, and no, you do not need to adjust your devices. You did hear that correctly. I'm going to Sophia Petrillo the intro here, so picture it. Transylvania, a region that is today central Romania, 1893. A dashing young real estate agent named Renfield, played by a deliciously campy Dwight Fry, he is riding a horse-drawn carriage with a small handful of other people through the Carpathian Mountains. He's on his way to the castle of Count Dracula for a scheduled meeting to transfer ownership of Carfax Abbey in London. The carriage pulls up to what looks like an inn, and everyone gets out. The porter unpacks everyone's luggage, but Renfield asks for his luggage to stay where it is because he intends to keep going. Another carriage is meeting him at Borgo Pass at midnight to bring him to the castle of Count Dracula. The innkeeper recoils in shock and horror. As the woman who I think is supposed to be the innkeeper's wife, she makes the sign of the cross. In astonishment and horror, the innkeeper says to him, No, you mustn't go there. We people of the mountains believe that at the castle there are vampires, Dracula and his wives. They take the forms of wolves and bats. They leave their coffins at night, and they feed on the blood of the living. And that intro alone just proves just how stagey this film is. But I don't say that as a knock against the film. For me, it is part of the appeal. Renfield, of course, he just dismisses all of this as superstition. He eventually just goes on his merry little way to keep his appointment. The ride's pretty rough, and Renfield, he's bouncing up and down like a hyena in heat, so he sticks his head out of the window to call to the driver, but lo and behold, where there should be a driver, there is just a bat guiding the horses along and flapping its wings. So now it's Renfield's turn to recoil in shock and horror, and as he arrives at the castle of Count Dracula, that's where the fun really begins. Let's leave it there and pivot now towards Frankenstein, released in November of 1931. This one, 
opens in a dark and gloomy graveyard. You have mourners standing by an open plot. There's a funeral service going on. And once they leave, two men come along. One of them is a scientist named Dr. Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive. And the other is his assistant, Fritz, played by <laughs> Dwight Fry, Renfield himself from Dracula. Same actor. They've been watching the proceedings, and they walk right up to the grave once everyone leaves, and the caretaker lights his pipe and struts off with his trusty shovel, and they go right over to the freshly buried plot, they dig up the coffin, they hoist it up out of the ground, and then there's an iconic close-up of Frankenstein's face as he rests his cheek against the coffin. He pats it, almost sensually, as he whispers, he's just waiting, waiting for a new life to come. And let me tell you, this guy's eyes at this moment... They are wild. It's, it's obvious that he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal in terms of clarity of thought and sanity. But together, they lug this coffin up a hill and up to the gallows where there's the dead body of a criminal hanging. And Fritz climbs up to the top of the gallows. He cuts the rope to let the corpse drop to the ground. Dr. Frankenstein sees that the brain is useless because the neck is broken, you see. Well, I mean, yeah, of course it's broken. This dead criminal was hanged. I don't know why they needed to check, but I'm glad the scientists put two and two together to make nine. So fade out, and that's where I'm hitting the pause button for Frankenstein. Just a few fun facts now about both films, but this is where things are going to get a little spoilery. So this is your friendly warning, your spoiler alert, as you now get to the ten fun facts. Five for each film. Warning, warning, warning. From Dracula. Number five, the movie is based on the 1897 book written by Bram Stoker. The movie is produced by Kyle Lemley Jr., based on the stage play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Baldiston. John L. Baldiston was nominated for an Academy Award for writing the screenplay for 1944's Gaslight with Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, and Joseph Cotton. This is the movie that got Ingrid Bergman her Oscar, or her first Oscar, I should say. Number four. The 1927 Broadway play grossed over $2 million, and remember, that's a $1927. The studios, though, were still apprehensive to make a film version because the character is so grotesque. They took a gamble, and it worked out well for them. Number three, Kyle Lemley Jr. He was the head of production of Universal from 1928 to 1936. He was the one who championed the film production of Dracula. He was fresh off of his Academy Award win for Best Picture for All Quiet on the Western Front, an Oscar that he received at the tender age of 22 years old. Next, Kala Lemley. She is the niece of Kyle Lemley Sr., so Kyle Lemley Jr.'s cousin. She is the very first one who speaks in the movie. She's sitting in the carriage, and she is the first ever to speak in a supernatural talkie. You have to keep in mind that this is 1931. Talkies had only been around for about four years by this point. And number one. This one is more of a self-indulgent fun fact, but the high school where I teach English and film and run a movie club, a few years ago, it was 2018, and the movie club took a look at this film. They watched Dracula. One of my students at the time, he turned to me after the movie was done, and he said, and I quote, this would not have nearly as much impact if the movie were not in black and white. End quote. Score. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And moving along to Frankenstein, the top five facts for Frankenstein. Number five, despite the enormous success of Dracula, Universal Studio executives, they were still concerned about the prospects of a movie based on the book Frankenstein. The Dracula book was only 34 years old, but Mary Shelley's book was published in 1818. But again, they took a gamble. 
and again, it paid off. Number four, the Universal Studio executives, they wanted a warning to be filmed because of a preview audience in Santa Barbara. This audience, whoever they were, they took a look at a rough cut of the film. It was a preview audience, and they had some feedback to give, and one of them was how disturbing the movie was. So the executives decided, in order to rectify this, we should really film a warning, and they chose to have Edward Van Sloan, who plays Dr. Waldman in the film. He steps out from behind a curtain, and he addresses the camera, the audience, and he says, Mr. Carl Lumley feels it would be unkind to present this picture without just a bit of friendly warning. And he goes on to say how the movie may thrill you, it may even shock you, and so on and so forth. Funny thing is, is that he actually also played Professor Van Helsing in the 1927 Broadway play Dracula, as well as the 1931 film. And as a side note, this warning, it was parodied by Madge Simpson in the very first Treehouse of Horror episode of The Simpsons back in 1990. Number four, Dwight Fry, Renfield and Dracula, and Fritz and Frankenstein. As a result of both of these roles, he was typecast as the horror sidekick. The character of Fritz is not in Mary Shelley's novel at all. The first time Fritz appeared as a comic sidekick was in an 1823 stage production called Presumption, The Fate of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley herself sat in the audience and she watched this. She saw it, she saw this character, and she is said to have enjoyed the effect that the character had on the audience. So she gave it her blessing. Next, Jack Pierce. There is no way we are going to talk about the movie Frankenstein without a shout-out to Jack Pierce, makeup artist Jack Pierce, who gave the creature his famous look. He used black shoe polish on Boris Karloff's fingertips to look like blood was settling in the extremities. Boris Karloff removed the bridge from his mouth and sucked in his cheek to get that gaunt effect. Now, Boris Karloff, with the costume and makeup on, 48 pounds worth of costume and makeup, 7 feet tall. And he was in full makeup, apparently, one day. A secretary at Universal Studios saw him, and, so the story goes, she fainted when he smiled at her in costume. Kyle Lemley Sr. said to Boris Karloff, we can't have this happening every day. So he ordered him to wear a blue veil and be escorted to and from the commissary for lunch every day so that nobody would have to suffer the ill effects of taking a look. Lemley is said to have commented, and I quote, some of our nice little secretaries are pregnant, and they may be frightened if they saw him, end quote. We'll just leave that sentence right there for you to digest. And next, the book Frankenstein, written by Mary Godwin. It was spring of 1816. She would later become, of course, Mary Shelley. She and her lover, Percy Bysshe Shelley, their infant son, William, and Lord Byron, they were vacationing together in Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Unfortunately, the weather was atrocious. Constant rain, electrical storms, and there was near-constant darkness, actually, because of an 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora on an Indonesian island. So there was ash and pumice, 60 megatons of sulfur into the atmosphere. It was a four-month-long eruption, resulting in one of the coldest winters on record. It's actually called the Year Without a Summer, one of the coldest and wettest years in Western Europe in recorded history. So they couldn't do their usual summertime activities, you know, they couldn't go jet skiing or anything like that. So Lord Byron turned to them and he said, hey, let's each of us write a ghost story for each other. They agreed to do this. She had trouble coming up with an idea, but inspiration finally hit. She wrote a little bit down. She shelved it until the summer ended. She picked it up again resumed it in August, and eventually the idea was expanded into a novel. And number one, the identity of Frankenstein's creature, 
was meant to be a mystery. So if you take a look at the opening credits of Frankenstein, it does not say Boris Karloff. He does not get billing until the end credits. In place of his name, there is a question mark to emphasize that we have no idea who this dude is or where he's coming from. In order to continue to preserve the mystery, they also turned to Boris Karloff and said to him, you're not going to be going to the premiere. So he could not attend the premiere in New York City, which was Friday, December 4th, 1931. The movie grossed over a million dollars in its first release, double the take of Dracula. After the preview audience at Santa Barbara spoke up, yes, the warning at the beginning was added. The scene of Maria drowning the little girl, that was cut. There was also a happy ending added. Dr. Frankenstein was supposed to originally die in the windmill. Also, in England, the scene where he's chasing Elizabeth around in her wedding dress, that scene was cut in prints of the film that was sent to England. So there you have it, the fun facts for Dracula and Frankenstein. And there are just two more items of business before I bring on today's guest, and that will be the poll results and the trivia. This week's poll put out the question of which of these two characters, Dracula or Frankenstein's creature, you would want to team up with against the other if you had to choose. And in a landslide, most of you sank your fangs into Dracula. Edward I said, Dracula, he could hypnotize you to do anything. And Ed, I want you to know that I love that comment because it reminds me of one of my favorite lines when Dracula turns to Van Helsing and he says, Come here. Come here. Mary C., she says, simply but effectively, Team Dracula, great to hear from you again, Mary. Mike W., he says, hard choice, but he goes with Frankenstein's creature. Alicia W., she also goes for Frankenstein's Creature, saying, we would just eat a lot of garlic and go out in the daytime. David A., from the podcast, I'd give that 10 minutes. He says, I would team up with Dracula. He has the edge on Frankenstein's monster for sure. And check out this guy's show. I'd give that 10 minutes if you haven't already. It is well worth subscribing to. Over on Twitter, all votes for Dracula. Every single one of them. And on the gram, on Instagram, that is, Nufo says, Bella Lugosi will always be my favorite, but I do like Karloff too. And they were also good enough to point out that I was one year off when I posted a publicity photo for The Raven, which they both starred in together. I had said it was 1936, but it was actually 1935, so thank you, Nufo. Duly noted. We have been in contact about that. And as for the trivia, in the last episode, we looked at George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, and the question then was, what 1993 movie, based on a Stephen King book starring Timothy Hutton in a dual role as a writer and his alter ego, was directed by George A. Romero. And the answer is 1993's The Dark Half, starring Timothy Hutton, Tommy G from Rewatch, Relive, Repeat Podcast, or R3 Podcast NZ, or NZ, depending on where you live in the world. He nailed it, and he says Timothy Hutton is brilliant. He starred opposite Johnny Depp in one of my favorite films, Secret Window. Yes, Tommy, Secret Window, good call. I saw that when it first came out, around the same time as the first Pirates of the Caribbean. It's worth revisiting. I haven't seen it since then, but I'm going to have to take another look at it, so thank you. David A. from I'd Give That 10 Minutes says that he has heard of the Doc Half, but he has not seen it. And to be honest with you, Dave, I went through a phase years back where I watched every Stephen King adaptation that I could get my hands on. And after having just seen Timothy Hutton in Taps with George C. Scott and in The Falcon and the Snowman with Sean Penn, I wanted to see more of Timothy Hutton as well. So putting the two of them together was like a gift from the movie gods at the time. JC also answers the Doc Half. Great to hear from you again, Jay. And thanks to Dan B. for answering as well that Sherry Bombs Podcast has this to offer. The Doc Half, which is very underrated. And yes, I agree with that. It didn't do so hot when it first came out, which is too bad, seeing as how Misery did so well just a few years earlier. 
The New World Pictures podcast seconds that sentiment, saying that the Doc Half is very underrated, as does the Film Effect podcast. They say not only is it underrated, but it also helps to inspire the new horror movie Malignant. And Hugh, Hugh B, he says that he hasn't actually seen the Doc Half, but wanted to know if it's worthwhile. But it sounds like the Cherry Bombs podcast and the New World Pictures podcast and the Film Effect podcast all answer that question for me. So (laughs) thank you to all three of you again. And everyone, be sure to check out their shows. And Hugh, great to hear from you. And this week's trivia question. What Academy Award winning actor plays Dracula in the 1992 feature film, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Send your answers on over to Twitter at FilmBuff1974, or you can post to the Facebook group Silver Screeners, you can go on Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can simply shoot me an email, FrankMendoza at Yahoo.com. This question is going to be posted across all the socials as well, so keep your eyes open in order to get a personalized meme and a shout-out in the next episode. And at this point, let's shift gears again, because it is high time that I bring Ian Graham into this conversation. As I mentioned, he is located in Scotland, and he hosts the podcast Cult Connections. We have been following each other on Twitter now for a while, and we've listened to each other's shows. He's got some great stuff that he brings into each and every one of his episodes, but I will let him be the one to tell you about that. We're, of course, going to be talking about both Dracula and Frankenstein, the 90-year-old legacies of both films, Climb into Dracula's buggy, gulp down that garlic, and never say you're invited to a vampire if you want to save your neck. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi there, Frank. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. This is going to be great. As I've just mentioned, we've been following each other on Twitter for a while, so it's really cool to meet you virtually and to have this collaboration, which will hopefully be the first of many. I think so. I'm certainly going to... I'm going to drag you on the, the, to my show at some point, Frank, so uh, <laughs> uh, that will definitely happen. But uh, um, you know what, when we when we make these shows and we speak to people, it's actually it's great just to chat to people from all around the world and and so on. And, you know, we all love, you know, films and we all love to talk about, about our films. And uh, um, hopefully you like to listen to uh, us also talking about, about our our favourite films are not so favourite sometimes, isn't it? But uh, no, no, it's always really, really good. Yeah, what you just said, that's how I begin a lot of these episodes, is I'll say that we'll be taking a look at some films, some of them fondly remembered, and in some cases, just the opposite. That's not the case today with these two movies from 1931, so so I'd like to dive right in and get your thoughts on both of them. So the first question that I have for you, and this can really go in any direction that you want, I want to ask you, do you remember the first time you saw these movies? How old you were? If you found them scary, or maybe if you didn't find them scary at all, if you never did. Hmm, it's interesting. Um, so thinking back, it can be difficult to filter out sometimes, you know. So when you do go way way back to um, uh, their sort of childhood, you know, it's easy to get things mixed up in your head, isn't isn't it? Especially with especially with these two films, because you know they set the tone for. For so so many things that you know came sort of afterwards, and um, I think even if you've never watched these films, you'll definitely know a lot of the um, their sort of images and the the dialogue as well. Obviously, um, especially I think um, their Frankenstein. It's got one one sort of particular line that I think most people probably actually do know. 
However, thinking back to my my sort of childhood, um, you know, the images were always there. You would see them. You would see, um, you know, sort of posters and, you know, clips from the films would be in various um, their sort of TV shows and things like that. And and there was, you know, when growing up in 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 the Britain in the 1970s and the 80s, it was still a still a um, their sort of tradition where where the, where these older films would be shown a lot. So they would be on um, their sort of TV and and uh, their things like that. I can't say. I can remember specifically watching these both, but I'm absolutely certain that I did. Um, one sort of uniquely British thing, um, so certainly I think um, they're sort of growing up, is that obviously if we didn't have um, the, the Universal films, then we wouldn't have, have had the Hammer, um, their horror, their film films either. So when you grow up in in the the UK, these films were on all the time. So, um, so Dracula, you know, Frankenstein, and all the various, um, you know, spin-offs from these films, they were on the television all the time. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I do want to ask you, being from Britain yourself, I'm curious, and you've pretty much already answered this, but I'm curious about how often these films might be shown on television or if they would be in movie theaters, basically how they were exhibited overseas, similar probably to what we have here in the States. If if there are films that are quote-unquote imports, you know, from different parts of the world, they may sometimes be screened in mainstream movie theater chains, especially if they hit it big come Oscar season. I think particularly of Parasite from a couple of years ago. But generally, more often than not, you have to seek these films out at a small independent theater or at an art house theater. Because I'm right outside of Boston, though, it's not really an issue for me to find them. Because, you know, there's a lot of theaters around here that I've been going to for years. These movies were shown, you said, on TV quite a bit? Oh yeah, definitely, and um, you know, I think as we obviously have have a shared um, their sort of language, it makes it easier to to actually watch these films. So, so they are English language films, and they're growing up pretty much every um, their sort of American studio film would be shown over over here. So, whether it be in in the um, their um, their cinema at the time, or maybe later on for some of the smaller ones, they would almost always all of them be on um, um, their sort of television, um, and certainly film-wise. Um, a bit different when it comes to to sort of TV shows. I know obviously we are talking about film, but um, a lot a lot of American their TV shows we didn't get just because there's far too many of them. And and they're growing up. We had we had three TV there channels, and it wasn't until I think it was nineteen eighty two when we eventually had four. So, which would mostly show you know British made um, their shows. So we would have big American their sort of TV shows, but but not all all of them. Like there's so many ones that 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 you would have grown up with. Um, there, Frank, that we didn't get 
and and sometimes we we we'd never even heard of. So, um, you know, it's quite funny and interesting one. And this isn't related to to the Universal films whatsoever, but uh, you know, talking there to people now, um, as regards say set sets their comms. So, so obviously in in the states in um, I think in the the fifties and the sixties, um, shows like I I love um, the Lucy were absolutely huge. You know, so that was a huge day show. We never got that. You know, it just wasn't shown over over, over here. So well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. So we have a yeah. cultural, so we have a shared um their sort of culture, but there are some big bits they're sort of missing. However, these films are are absolutely everybody knows them here, or everyone of a certain age, uh, you know, definitely knows them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, and the thing of it is, let's be fair, Dracula and Frankenstein, they may be technically American films. I mean, produced by American studios and released, you know, distributed by American film companies. But these stories, they're not American in origin. Neither one of them is. They Neither one of them started out as an American story. And Ian, you mentioned American sitcoms. And again, <laughs> let's face it, most of the U.S. sitcoms that tend to be regarded as among the best... All in the Family, Three's Company, and maybe even in more recent years, The Office. These American shows, these comedies, they all began as British shows. We just swiped them. (laughs) We stole, I mean, we didn't steal them. We bought the rights, but we we, we stole them. (laughs) We like to go around, you know, saying, oh, Hollywood entertainment capital. But to be fair, and I was saying to you before we began recording, uh, you know, that I teach high school English, and for years I've taught the book Frankenstein. And if you take a look at the book and then at the 1931 film, I mean, the differences are remarkable. I mean, a lot of that was the result of what the studios felt would probably be the most palatable for movie-going audiences at the time. The same with Dracula, which was adapted from the Broadway stage play, which in turn was adapted from Bram Stoker's book. I'm curious as to what drove some of those decisions. I mean, was it a matter of making things more relatable for the target audience at the time? Like, for example, when there was that preview audience, at the beginning of Frankenstein, you have Edward Van Sloan walking out from behind the curtain and giving the audience a warning of, it would be unkind to not give you the friendly warning, blah, blah, blah. And that was thrown in at the insistence of Universal after Santa Barbara. So the execs were nervous that the movie may have taken a few steps too far, but I mean, the novel is much, much worse in terms of grim plot turns and disturbing content. It's, a, it's interesting, isn't it? I suppose, you know, when we look back at these films and we have to remember that, you know, this is still very much a brave new um, their world as, as regards you know, make making films and 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 they're back in in um, their nineteen thirty one. Of course, they were just bringing in um, their sound as well. So this was a whole new right. thing for 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 the film they makers there to do. So, um, but also also I think as well, Frank. So when you're talking about well, actually, you know, if if you look at the books and you know the books have their own their own. Um, um, you know, plot plots and their own sort of view of of their things and um, how how can you represent that on in a in a visual um, 
you know, format. I mean, how do you take a lot of the the, the ideas and and you know something that will 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 sort of chill you when you read it, you know? So there will be sort of passages there that talk about a lot of things that you you know probably can't can't really represent that well just up on um, their their sort of screen. So I think that's that's the that's the big thing, isn't it? And I think also. You know, and, and actually to think about a film that's just a way a way to to sort of come out, but that's based on on a book that um, a, a lot of people love. So 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 if you love um, their sci-fi like I do, I I I watch a lot of of um, their sci-fi, and it's it, it, it's very much my sort of first love there when it comes to films. Um, but but Frank Herbert's um, their June. Now that's a huge book, and um, a lot of the themes and a lot of the plot and that do not are not um, easily rendered in in a visual format. It's actually difficult to make make a film of this this sort of book. So um, you know we're still at that at that stage now. I've heard a lot of good things about about the you know the um, the the new version of. Um, the June. However, you know, I have doubts in in my mind that that this is going to be the version of it because you know, you know, we've already had to do uh, their goes at it, and they're and they're good. I like I like I like the David Lynch's film. I like I like the the, the mini series as well, but they don't get to the core of it. And uh, but. I think that's that's the trouble when you love a book as well, and then you watch a film their version. You know that's always going to be in your in in your head. But you know, you know, Dracula and and their Frankenstein are so un, un, universal now that you know you will have sort of favourites like you will have a favourite vampire film, or or you will have a favourite film that looks at 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 the same elements that um, their their Frankenstein, you know. You know, does but you can go and read the, the books and love them, but love them for you know different reasons. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Frankenstein is a great book, but the Boris Karloff film, I, I, I can't say the book is better than the movie or the movie is better than the book, at least with this particular example, because there's such different animals. It's apples and oranges. And if you take a look at the film, there's so much to love about it as a lover of film. I mean, we could talk for hours about Karloff and everything he brought to the character. We could talk about James Whale and his legacy as a director and everything he brought to the table. Plus the fact that it spawned all of these, as you said, all of these sequels, these spin-offs, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Son of Frankenstein, all the Abbott and Costello meet, fill in the blank, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, whoever. There's something, this, this is going to be a terrible unintended pun, but there's something universal, I think, about these stories. If Frankenstein taps into this basic human fear, or if, if not fear, the very least, the, the basic human concern that life is finite, that nothing is permanent, and sometimes there's this desire to have control over fate, and you have all of those things certainly in the book, but as far as the film goes, Dr. Frankenstein has that famous line of dialogue that caused so much controversy at the time when he says, now I know what it feels like to be God. And, you know, that line was censored. And it wasn't restored, really. I don't think it was restored, I think, until one of the video releases in the 90s. I don't know, as controversial as something like that may be, 
it does speak to a very strong human emotion. And fear is something that everybody feels at one point or another about anything in life. So I think that's part of the reason why horror movies sometimes unite a lot of fans because it is a shared emotional experience, whether it's in the form of a jump scare or seeing someone run away from the boogeyman or a fear of, you know, extraterrestrials or monsters coming out of a swamp. There's something elemental that people can relate to. And some people like to confront their fears, and that's where you might have your horror movie fans in some cases. And then there are those people who may not want to acknowledge them. They don't care to see them. They may prefer to think about something more uplifting than something like Frankenstein meets Dracula's daughter or something, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I think um, you know, it's you know, people might be sitting and you know, listening and thinking, well, actually, why are these two, uh, you know, guys going going ninety years back and looking at these films? But I think what what always sort of strikes me, and 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 they absolutely they do still have that power to, uh, you know, to make you think, and um, but. You know, both of them are still hugely, um, they're sort of relevant to to the world that we live in there just now. So, um, I mean, you know, you know, Doc, Dr. Frankenstein's, um, you know, thought was, well, I can, you know, recreate life. I can make life where there is um, their sort of death. Now we see, you know, you know, billions of, of their dollars being pumped into uh, you know science to help us live longer or or you know people are getting you know frozen and they want to you know and and, and they be you know be be revived later on and uh, or 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 they look at you know they say like nano nano technology um you know, to help you live longer and, um, you know, make your organs last longer and all these things which, you know, stem from, uh, you know, Frankenstein, stem from that, that, that their initial sort of concept, um, you know, and, oh, okay, the thought of actually stitching there together a whole load of body parts and, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, forming life uh, from that maybe doesn't, ring sort of true you know too much now but the the basic sort of concept is so um uh you know relevant because we still see it going on people want this you know you know people want to live there forever that's probably what what their dr frankenstein wanted actually he, he was probably thinking well actually how can i live there forever and uh, you know this this was there uh, the out out uh you know come of it so yeah, and, and I think a lot of what you just said can apply to the concept of the vampire, too. I mean, obviously, it's a different kind of character. Frankenstein's creature is, you know, much more sympathetic. He did not ask to be created. He did not ask to be brought to life. He, he certainly didn't ask for everybody's initial reactions to him to be revulsion and, and horror. So, so he's rejected right from his first moments, right when he first opens his eyes, right from the word go. And that's one of the story's main themes is on what basis did they reject him? Was it because of his physical appearance? Was it his grotesque nature? It was not, as you were talking about, what Dr. Frankenstein originally envisioned. He, he did not think that it was going to be this horrific. And so his first, Dr. Frankenstein's first instinct is to run. And I just want to put in a side note for a second. Something that always seems to me to be effectively creepy 
In the book, he turns and runs from the creature once the creature opens his yellow eyes, and he dives into his bed and he pulls shut the bed curtains and he hides under his blankets. And the creature follows him in confusion, and not in hot pursuit, just stumbling after him with his arms outstretched. And he sticks his hand, the, the creature sticks his hand through the bed curtains, reaching out for him. And Dr. Frankenstein, he's lying in bed, he's got the covers up, and he sees the hand coming through the curtains, and it's scaring the hell out of him. That was actually a nightmare that Mary Shelley had, a hand coming through her curtains. So for her, that was one of the sources of inspiration for that particular moment, at least in the book. And again, that just speaks to the, to the elemental human emotion of fear. But I was going to turn towards Dracula with the vampire. Dracula, Dracula is a very different kind of character. You could say that the common link between them is that the two of them both represent immortality in a way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, different concepts and different circumstances. You know, Dracula is more sinister, more seductive, more manipulative, whereas Frankenstein's creatures, I mean, some may say he's a victim in all of this, or at least until he begins to lash out in his hurt and his anger. But as far as Dracula goes, do you have a preference of the vampire or the creature? Like, which one do you think was more, for you anyway, which one do you think was more creepy, more of a, I don't want to say a more memorable performance by Lugosi Akalov, but which one left more of an indelible mark on you, I guess, is what I'm asking? I think I would definitely, I mean, I mean, for me, definitely um, their Frankenstein, but for, but for very different sort of reasons. And um, so what we see in, in, in their Frankenstein and what we see actually from Boris, um, their Karloff is um, some, their sort of naivety. So he is, he is sort of newly born, you know, um, there's no sort of, um, you know, you don't get get a sense that 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 the creature is able to to remember that they're the past. I mean, he was just a brain, so it seems like there's no past past their sort of memories or things like that. You know that we know of, but I mean the the scene by the lake, I find actually really, really, really um, they're sort of tender before it turns quite. Quite, quite sort of dark at at the end. You know, there's a childlike sort of quality to the to the, to the monster, to to the the, the creature. And uh, um, I I must admit, I what there when I watched it again, they just just uh, the the other day, I was I was actually I was quite moved by that. And uh, um, and uh, you know that that actually. Um, you know, made me think a lot about, you know, acceptance of, of sort of new things. So it's almost like, well, you know, you know, something, you know, new comes along and um, our, our initial thoughts are actually are, are, are to fear it, are, are to run away. Whereas what we should be doing is, is actually reaching out and, and, you know, learning and finding out, well, what, what what sort of is it? What is actually good about it? You know how can we use it? How can it be positive? Um, you know, you know, Dracula is an interesting one for me, um, and and again, it seems so sort of relevant. Maybe not in a way that you've thought about there, Frank, but um, Dracula is a he's a the immigrant, so he comes to Britain. Um, he he this. You know, stows away in his um, um, their sort of coffin, and 
Uh, obviously, he comes out of the coffin and he's and he's you know different, so he's so he's foreign, so he looks different. Um, he sounds different, you know. We see the scene where he's at the um, their theatre or or a, or or a concert, and he's 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 speaking to his um, uh, their neighbours actually, so to his future neighbour, and and he said, no, I've I've actually I've just moved in there next door, uh, and everyone's a bit like, whoa, who's this bloke? You know, I don't I don't like the look <laughs> of you. Um, but that actually it made me think. Now we know Dracula is is there the villain. We know he's so he's gonna he, he's gonna suck your blood. He's gonna bite you. He's gonna turn you into into a um, the the vampire. He just wants to use you. But you know it's um, it actually hit home to me that it's portraying a foreigner, someone foreign. So they come over there, there to Britain in this case, uh, you know Britain, and they come overseas. And um, they are portrayed as as a villainous a sort of character, and uh, that's amazingly relevant to Britain there just now because, um, unfortunately, you know refugees are are, are travelling over by boat from from their France, um, and a large section of our our media are absolutely scapegoating these these uh, people before they've even got here. Um, and that struck me as actually as quite sort of similar in many ways. It's like, you know, fear, fear the foreign. You know, we do not accept it. I'll, 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 I'll look at these foreign people with their strange ways. Now, okay, you know, you know, you know, Dracula, he wasn't nice. He wasn't, you know, he was only out for himself. But generally, refugees are not, you know, horrible people. They're just, you know, trying there to live and... Uh, that that actually really struck home with me. Just, uh, I, I, you know, just just with everything sort of going on. Mm, that's a really thought provoking. That's that's a valid connection to make. Yeah, yeah. Because when it comes right down to it, we all pretty much in life, I would imagine, want the same thing. You know, we all want to be able to live. We all want to be able to have a life where we wake up in the morning safely. We all want to be able to put our heads down at night and we don't want to be looked at by total strangers and seen as someone to be revolted by or someone to shrink back from, someone to avoid or be disgusted by. You know, because as you say, we may speak different languages, have different customs, different areas of familiarity in everyday life, ranging from clothing to backgrounds to attitudes towards religions, social categories, cultural pastimes, I mean, you name it. There is that parallel there. You, you think about the little girl Maria. You mentioned the scene by the lake in Frankenstein. Maria sees him, and maybe she's surprised to see him. There's that shot of her looking at him in surprise and confusion. She's got the flowers up to her face, but she's not looking at him in disgust. She's not looking at him with a sense of, you know, get away from me. I mean, okay, maybe his physicality is not what she's used to seeing, but what's the first thing she says? She walks right up to him. She looks at him with a smile on her face. She introduces herself and says, let's play. Now, of course, practicality, stranger danger, kids. <laughs> Don't talk to strangers. But putting that aside, that's the purity of, at least for her, that's the purity of her childhood. You know, she takes him by the hand and leads him to the lake and they toss the flowers. And she never once mentions or asks, why do you look different? Or where did you come from? Or anything like that. She just accepts him for who he is. And they just enjoy this big old game of tossing flowers into the water and making boats. But that scene was deleted after preview audiences saw it. 
I don't know why that Santa Barbara audience was so influential, but apparently their reactions resulted in the elimination of the scene by the lake, and let's add in the opening warning before the credits, and let's change the ending at the windmill, give him and his bride a happy ending. I mean, whoever these people were, their word was, I guess, gold, but the scene with Maria and the creature making boats out of the flowers was taken out, which is a shame because it adds so much. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And to piggyback on what you were saying, when you see his reaction after he throws her in the water, he's completely confused and terrified. He has absolutely no idea that that what he was doing was anything dangerous or untoward. He thought that he, oh, I throw in the flower and it floats. I have no more flowers. Oh, here's a kid. I throw her in. Does she float? Now, yeah, obviously the concept is pretty monstrous, picking up this little kid and just chucking her into the pond, but without that footage of him panicking and looking terrified and running off once he sees what he's done, you lose the sense of of conscience, of remorse that he feels, and responsibility even, if you know what I mean. You know, this isn't just some mindless boogeyman, and without seeing his reaction to seeing her sink, it reinforces the notion that anything unfamiliar is evil. Well, I mean, it's... it's... It sort of speaks about um, their sort of parenthood as well. Now, you know, Dr. Frankenstein has has, has run away from his own, um, their sort of creation and and his, um, the, their responsibilities. Actually, it's up to him to to teach the, the creature. He, he, he made him, um, but actually he's, he's uh, running off and he's, he's uh, denying any kind of responsibility. It's like, hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so, so, yeah. But I, I mean, this is it. It, it, it's, it speaks to universal sort of concepts, doesn't it? You know, there is the innocence of their children, but there's also the, the acceptance of 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 their children as well. It's, a, uh, you know, before all of all of the horrible stuff that. Uh, you know, parents and um, uh, their the, the society, you know, you know, you know, sticking into in young, uh, young sort of minds about, uh, you know, fearing things and all these horrible sort of negatives. Um, whereas what we should actually be doing is to nurture our, um, you know, sort of children and actually you know, be be sort of happy that they are able to accept new thoughts and uh, all of those those uh, things. So it's 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 still so sort of relevant. And as far as the film goes, in that particular scene, those performances really do bring out that tenderness between them. I mean, at least until he throws her into the water. It's a moment that adds layers of meaning to really what is at the core of the story. At least this particular version of the Frankenstein story. In fact, the actress who played the little girl, Marilyn Harris, she loved Boris Karloff. She said he was gentle and kind. and She wasn't getting that from home. Her mother was sort of an archetypal, overbearing, dominating stage parent kind of a thing. She was always on this poor little girl's case about her weight. Watch your weight, you know, don't eat this, and, you know, keep your figure. So they filmed her being tossed into the water. But then they had to do a second take. So James Whale took her aside and being tender with her, you know, she's a little kid, he said... Marilyn, we need to do it again. I hope you don't mind. It's probably not going to be pleasant to be tossed into the water a second time, but if you agree to do it a second time, I'll give you anything you want. And she thought about it, and she said, okay, if I do it again, I know what I want. A dozen hard-boiled eggs. Strange request. (laughs) Uh, That was food that her mother would not allow her to eat at home. So they did the second take, which is the one in the film, and and he was so impressed that he surprised her by giving her two dozen hard-boiled eggs. But she loved Boris Karloff. I've 
and I've seen this in documentaries and YouTube videos from a lot of people who knew him. He was sort of the, the gentle giant. Everyone loved him, which is ironic, you know, because he plays what would become one of the most recognizable horror movie. I don't even want to call him a villain. I'd call him a Hollywood creature of the era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's uh, uh, that's a testament that they're to the talent of of they're the man. It's funny, like you can see, um, you know, even even when he's layered in, you know, the the, the makeup and uh, the the costume and all that stuff, that uh, he he can actually give give a performance full of uh, you know warmth and uh, this sort of innocence and, and you know fear and express all of those uh, those uh, you know all of those those uh, things. So it really actually really stands out and that's why his his name is actually um they remembered you know so much more than 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 sort of others isn't it so oh yeah yeah you mentioned the word frankenstein and people automatically know what you're talking about even if they haven't seen the movie they get the association yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's it and that's uh and that is the, the power and that's that's the strength of these films isn't it that they're still they are sort of timeless in many ways, and uh, and here we are. There's a you know there's there's a bloke in 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 this in their Scotland, Frank you're in um, uh, the the states, and we're and we're sitting sitting here ninety years on, uh, you know, talking about them. I think that really that actually sums it up, doesn't it? That's that's how how good they are. That's actually, that's just it. If you went back to 1931 and told anybody involved in these productions that in 90 years' time that, that there'd be this conversation happening between two guys, one in Europe and one in the States, I mean, their minds would be blown. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's it. That's, that's the testament. That's, um, that's what makes great um, their sort of art. It's great their film, film they're making, that these images are, are so sort of powerful and, and that we know them so well that we are actually doing that and um you know if you don't know the films go you know go and seek them out and give them a watch and um and that's the thing it's so relevant as well i mean we think of um the sort of dracula now i watched um they're the lost boys uh, uh there last night so you know you know it's, it's it's an iconic 80s film it's uh you know i think of uh, you know it's got all those great young they're sort of actors and they look stylish and and they're so on and they the the music's great and it's got all these all these uh, scenes in it and but we look back fondly on it and it's a film that we love and you know all the all these other vampire films you know they they're the Twilight Saga you know vampires and you know werewolves um, all those things and. You know, it, it sort of generates, it it resonates there throughout. You know, we're still, you know, watching these these films in it, and and it was because of these there too all the way back then. And uh, uh, you know, the 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 mummy films. I mean, again, that's you know, you know, carried on. You know, Hammer did their version, and then then there's the the nineties versions where it's big action films that you know give uh, give the the audience you know something else again. I think less said about 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 the Tom, you know, Cruise version. They're the better, to be honest. But you know, again, that's another version. You know, so they are timeless and they live on. And you know, you can you know take them in so many 
you know, different sort of places, like like The Lost Boys, that's, that's a teen film, and it resonates with, uh, you know, sort of teenagers and, you know, growing up and their acceptance, or, you know, I've seen, you know, there's vampire films that, you know, talk about, um, you know, uh, they, <clears throat> you know, the HIV and, and sort of AIDS and, you know, can talk about very serious themes within, you know, a vampire picture, you know, they can do that. So very relevant, mm. you know, to the times that they're made and you can, you know, and you can use that to tell all kinds of different, you know, stories and that's, and, and that's it. And it all comes back down to 1931. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, these movies, they saved Universal Studios financially, but they also launched this whole subgenre that might sometimes get written off as just schlocky fright fests. But there's really more food for thought to offer than most people would give them credit for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, this is it. I mean, it's inspired uh, filmmakers and writers and uh, their TV shows and, um, you know, bands who, who write their their sort of music on on these very themes. It's uh, you know it, it it inspires so so many things and you know lives on and uh, and I'm sure it will still still there live on. I'm sure in their twenty years their time uh, there, Frank, we can uh, we can have a similar conversation and and talk about you know four, five, six, ten, ten, ten films that have been made since uh, since you know this one that shared the same. Uh, same their theme, so it's gonna, you know, it's gonna live on, isn't it? It's a pretty safe bet that as long as people continue to see these movies, then they'll continue to make them. Not necessarily always a remake, but adding their own personal spins to them, their own visions, their own renditions of these stories. Yeah, that's yeah. It, exactly. You know, and uh, you know, we look back and we look back at the films that we love, but you know, we look forward to the ones that are to come. I mean, I spoke about. Um, their June earlier on, and about how 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 it comes from a from a book, a book I love. I've read it three three their times. Um, even though it's not a you know it's not a quick easy read. It's a, it certainly it takes a lot of focus. But you know I'm looking forward to the new version, and I wouldn't be surprised if in their twenty years time that there's another new version, you know, coming out. So you know this is it. It lives on, and you know, and it resonates with us. And I will admit that the 1992 Dracula and the 94 Frankenstein, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Kenneth Branagh, I like both of those movies a lot, but you can't stack Robert De Niro against Boris Karloff and say which one is the, the better, you know, creature. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Two different kinds of filmmaking, you know, from two different eras. So, so who's to say that one is, you know, inferior to the other? It's a, it's, it's a fascinating thought, and it's something that I try not to... To sort of go down so you know when we see on on social media and we read uh, uh you know books and there's you know you know magazine articles and you know polls everywhere or you know what's your favorite horror film you know you know list your you know top 10 uh you know sci-fi films or list list your top 10 worst you know horror films and um, and you know what, for me, it's just, you know, what we like, what we like, and and we don't like what we don't like, and it doesn't really care, 
and it doesn't really care what other people like or or don't like because there's room for it all. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. There's there's you know so much room yeah. out there. Um, you know, when we get obsessed with lists and you know we must have a have have a favorite film of all of all their time. Now I've got a favorite film of all their time. It's not the best film of all their time. Um, I know a lot of people don't like it. I don't really care. I don't. I don't really want to get, you know, dragged down in an argument as to why I like it and you don't. So, but you know, there is room for so much, and um, you know, and we can look back at all these things and we can find merit in, in you know, most things. You know, I there's very little films that I turn around and and say, well, they're absolutely awful. And I certainly I don't pour scorn on anyone who likes something I don't like because, you know, the world would be very very boring if 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 we all like the, the same thing. So, well, there'd be nothing to discuss, no conversations to have. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, it's all subjective, you know, personal experiences. Whether it's the person you were with when you saw it for the first time, or what point in life where you were, how old you were, individual circumstances. I mean, that all those things have an impact on how we receive films. Yeah, 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 definitely, and that's it, and that's like, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, like I was saying earlier about, you know, so, so you know, growing up in um, sort of Britain, and because Hammer made so many films, they were, they were British films, so they were shown on, on the, the, the TV all the time. I mean, there wouldn't be a week goes past and there wasn't a Hammer horror film on the, the television, so... You know, you got you know, uh, you know Dracula. You got Frankenstein, uh, the the Mummy, all kinds of different films. You know, films based on you know witchcraft and all these things. And you know, it's just part of your your sort of culture. It was what you grew up with. It was, it was there, and it forms what you like. And um, you know, but so varied as well. But it's it's what makes us who who we are, isn't it? I mean. You know, to be honest, if someone says horror films to me now, you know, recently I've I've started watching some um, this sort of Italian horror, but they're they're still fairly new, new for me. So that so that's great. So I'm going back to the back to the seventies and and the eighties and and almost watching a lot of these films for the first first sort of time and absolutely loving it. It's it, it is it is they great, but they're they're brand new for me. Um, whereas a Hammer film or a or a Universal one, that's that's been there forever. That's that's part of you know that's just part of my view of of you know films and you know sort of horror films. I I don't watch a lot of slasher films. I have done recently, but that's not usually a genre that I watch much. But um, you know, so that's been a new one for me. Um, and that's and that's great, and it's great to be able to take those, um, you know, sort of journeys as well. But um, so, so what I would say is, if you don't know these films, actually, go and get go and get the the Universal Monsters um, their box set because if you get the the, the Blu-ray box set, these films are sparkling. Um, they look fantastic. I mean, visually, these films, you know, stand up so well. So. Uh, uh, you know, go back and watch them, and uh, I think you'll be really the you know, um, they're surprised just by how well made they are as well. I mean, these films are so well made. I think that they were made with a with a belief in them, 
I mean, Carl Lemley Sr. called the stories morbid, and Junior was the one who championed them. And I think uh, it's interesting when when we look back at them now. There is, um, especially in in sort of Dracula, there's a little element of 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 sort of staginess. So at times it feels a little bit sort of stilted. Sometimes the movement or the or the lack of movement um, there sort of shows up, but. You know, remember we'd had twenty years of filmmaking. You know, you know, thirty years of filmmaking prior to um, there, the nineteen thirties. So what you do see is the visual skills in these films. So you know, the sets are fantastic. One thing I take from the Frankenstein now, he's in his he's he's in his lab. It's in this old windmill. So you've got these these fantastic walls. It looks it looks huge. It looks lovely. But he's got his um, um, their sort of equipment and his their electrodes or whatever they are, and they're sparking away, and it look it looks great. It looks it just you know it look it, it still looks fresh and and fairly modern, and you know it's really sort of striking. And um, you know one thing I do take from it, and one thing I did I did miss a little bit in um, the Dracula is that there's very little the their sort of music. So actually a lot of the scenes are quite silent and I missed a little bit of, of sort of music. There's only really music at the start of the film. Uh, Frankenstein's the same, but like in the middle, you get you get the thunderstorm. So there's a big storm and there's the sound of the rain and there's the thunderclaps and, and all that stuff. And it, and it brings it there to life. And it's, oh, it's just, it is, it is just really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, these both came out as silent movies were fading away and talkies were still relatively a new thing. 1927, four years, not a long time to perfect what works and what doesn't in turn, you know, background music, dialogue, delivery. And Dracula is stagey. There's no way to deny that, but it makes sense. I mean, it was a Broadway play with Bela Lugosi and put the staginess aside and you visually have a feast for the eyes here. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're the... the there's the, the the scenes in the ruined the abbey that looks fantastic. I mean, it 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 looks it looks so so good. It looks real, you know. To me, you know, I can imagine that actually being a real sort of place. The the cobwebs that are all over, I, I mean, they look absolutely brilliant. I mean, uh, you know, great work there. You know, the 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 makeup's really good. Um, you know. The the you know the 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 outfits and all that all that stuff it's just you know and and that's it it's testament to the craft as well I mean these were craftsmen and uh, yeah the, yeah they were breaking new sort of ground in many ways but they knew what they were doing I mean uh, you know some of the best visual films come from the the twenties I mean there's some absolutely stunning films with huge action shots and then you know vistas and and everything so they you know they knew how to make a, a great looking film oh without question and i'm glad that you mentioned the makeup and costumes boris Karloff, he threw himself into this role didn't he have permanent scars on his neck from the electrodes that they had fastened to him well, I don't know about that but apparently he broke his back when um when they one of the big you know, bits of wood fell on him oh. at the end, apparently. So yeah. apparently really hurt himself. Lifelong back problems. Plus he has Colin Clive slung over his shoulder. Yeah. And I think they did that like 10 or 20,000 times. 
there's all that fire as well at the end. So everything's on fire now. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm sure, I'm sure health and safety back in the 1930s was not the same as they would have it now. So uh, <laughs> there's no, there's no, uh, you know, CGI fire going on dead here. It's uh, it's all real. So <laughs> all practical effects. That's the dedication to the craft that you're talking about right there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the cast of these movies? Any standouts? I'll tell you what I would like to talk about. So is just who who stands out from there the cast. So I've got I've got one from each. <laughs> well, there's a couple of bits that did sort of stand out. Now I watched the the Dracula last night. Now I'd actually I'd watched it not not that long ago, so maybe a couple of weeks back. I did watched it again, but then I stuck it on again there last night. Uh, and I was uh, doing a couple of, a couple of other things while it was on. So, however, um, Edward Van Sloan, who plays Van Helsing, mm, I'm smiling just because you mentioned his name. <laughs> yeah, no, he's great. Now, great um, the, the 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 performance. Now, I believe he is an um, American actor. Now, he he gives a. He he gives you sort of the a middle a middle sort of European type type sort of accent. So uh, that he's that he's sort of doing. He sounds a bit there Scottish every now and then. To be honest, he kind of lapses into, into, into what sounds like you know you know Scotty from uh, there from the Enterprise just ever so slightly if if you're listening. But he was really good, I must admit. In Frankenstein. I think the 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 sort of performances all round are, are really good. May May their Clark who who plays their sort of Elizabeth, uh, I was quite there struck with with the, her. But but the person who I absolutely loved so Frederick, um, their their Kerr who plays Baron Frankenstein. So that's the Doctor Frankenstein's father. He's absolutely brilliant. I just yes. love him. Um, he uh, he absolutely steals every scene there that he's in. Um, so I, yeah, he was just absolutely brilliant. I loved it. I loved it. It was it was so good. Um, and you can see, and that's the thing. I mean, you can see these these their actors. You know, when you look at their um, their sort of credits, and you know, a lot of them obviously come from from a theatre background, but had made films during the, the silent era and then into the, the, the talkies and and onwards as well, obviously. Um, you know, Karloff's films, you know, stretched well, well past this um this sort of era. But you know, that's that's um that one really stands out to me. So a big thumbs up to uh Frederick um their care there he was he was absolutely superb you have created a monster and it will destroy you <laughs> yeah well his, his his son's gonna destroy him yeah i mean that's the thing no wonder he's chugging back um uh they're the wine in, in uh, <laughs> <laughs> seem to en enjoy that so 
I did love, and, and I know that this is a polarizing opinion, but I did love Dwight Fry in Dracula. I mean, his performance has been roundly criticized as completely over the top and hammy with his maniacal laughing, his going on about the rats and the spiders, but it's just so much fun to watch. I gotta hand it to him, though, for the way he plays Fritz and Frankenstein as well. I mean, the way he jumps a mile high when he drops the jar of the normal brain and you hear the random cymbal crash or some such thing. Of course, you can't watch that without thinking of Marty Feldman and young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> we have to give a shout out to young Frankenstein. <laughs> and there you go. See, that's um, you know, that's that's the that's the power of it, isn't it? That's that's the influence or or the turn that you can take. So so you can have a spoof version of um, you know, Frankenstein and you know that works really well and and we remember fondly and uh uh, you know, Gene, Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman and, you know, great, great um, sort of actors and they do their spin on it. But um, uh, that's the thing. You can, you know, take it anywhere that you like and, you know, say all kinds of different things. And you can have fun or you can be serious. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's all there. It's all good. And it's all come right from there to here. If there's one thing I love as well, and I think probably that we don't talk about about sort of too much now, I was uh, chatting with my friends, and we're looking forward to going to see the new um, their Bond uh, their film. So obviously, if you're uh, they're sort of British, they you love their James Bond, you know you cannot get away from that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and and let's face it, the rest of the world loves it as well. But it's about. Uh, you know, two hours, 40 minutes long now, uh, you know, that's a long their time, you know, to be sitting. Um, and now I'm sure it's going to be good. I know, I know I'm going to absolutely love it. These films pack it all in in less than, I think, 75 their minutes for, for, for their Dracula. I think they're 70 minutes for their Frankenstein. It's packed in there. No frame is uh, wasted, so... Um, and that's a great thing, isn't it? You can think, oh, I, I'm going to watch a classic film. It doesn't actually last that long, but it's that's because it doesn't have to. You know, they make it so well and they pack it all in and it just feels absolutely right. So, I think that's when Frankenstein's creature comes to life. It's pretty much oh, almost near the midway point through the movie, isn't it? Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. but I mean, you know, the build-up so well sort of done and it sets the scene. Oh yeah, that's just it. It's the character development and the exposition. It's it's all done in a way that keeps you watching. Yeah, uh-huh. but I mean, you know, for me, you know, you don't have to. I mean, you know, films these days are getting longer and longer, and it's like, nah. I must admit, I look back at probably most of my favorite ones from 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 say the eighties, and and nothing's longer than about an hour and you know, forty minutes maximum. Even the best films back there, you know, 90 minutes and it's, you know, it's done, you know, it's it's told the story, it's told it, it's told it well and you don't feel like you're missing anything, you know, you're satisfied that they're the end of it and, and these are just, you know, they are the same and wouldn't it be great, you know, to think, you know, you could go back to the 30s and you could sit through a proper a proper night at, at the movies and you'd have a, have a serial and, uh, uh, you know, a shorter feature and, you know, uh, a, a, their sort of animation. And then you'd end up with a great film like, like, you know, these, these there too. I think, I think that must've been absolutely brilliant. 
Yeah, for me, the perfect fall evening would be seeing both of these movies as a double feature up on the big screen, a Friday or a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And you'd still have, you know, time uh, to go off and do something else as well. So, uh, you know, you wouldn't go home and go straight to, to your bed because you'd sat through five hours of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, ex- exposition. <laughs> I'd just keep it going. After the double feature, I'd just go home and throw in the Wolfman and the Invisible Man and just make it a marathon. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. Exactly. Makes you want one sort of more. So, you know, who... Whoever's listening, do do go and get that Blu-ray set. It's absolutely brilliant. So, I second that wholeheartedly. Yeah. <laughs> so this has been fantastic. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to give you the chance to tell people how they can find you, what your show is all about, cult connections, whatever you want to say about it. Sure. So, yeah, so um, I I launched my, my podcast in um, the January, uh, and it's been going going really well i'm really really pleased with that so again we talk film and um the tv um i say we it's me and it's a different um their guest every every week sometimes you know more than one um but what we do so there's a theme for each episode and and we talk about three things, so either three films, three um, sort of TV shows, or a, or a mixture of of sort of both. And there's uh, so there's a common theme, and sometimes it can be quite obvious. So it, it might be either a, a actor or a um, their director, uh, their sort of writer, or it might be slightly different. So. Um, this week we're talking about a their prop that actually turns up in their three very different films. Um, so if you want to know what links um, a Disney it it a, a Disney film from from the seventies, um, the biggest film probably ever that changed the face of 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 sort of cinema and a a the a, a adaptation of a British um their sort of classic, then 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 they this week has you there covered. So that's a very different their sort of take on that. Um I, again I've done three British TV um their sort of dramas uh, focus on um the, the end of the world and a very scary scary way of of sort of looking at it and uh, uh three shows that absolutely terrified me when i was um they uh, they're sort of younger um i've done i've covered kurt um um the russell without mentioning um the the big big their trouble in uh, their little china <laughs> or the the thing um, so, so I've managed to do three really good films of their, of their his without going near the, they're the obvious. So, um, yeah, it's all about just finding odd angles and, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of fascinating things that, um, uh, you know, link up all, all kinds of different, um, their sort of films and their TV shows. So, um, yeah, so please do give it a a a, 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 a try, um, and 
And Frank, me and you will will be working on this. Something I'll be getting you on, and we'll find uh, um, a really clever concept that we can uh, sort of cover. So that would be great. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Frank. It's been absolutely brilliant. I uh, uh, there when we started, I wasn't sure how much I would uh, I would actually manage there to talk about these two, but. Um, I think we've actually done them um, their justice, haven't we? So it's been really, really good. I think we paid good tribute to them. And that wraps up this special episode on the 90th anniversary of these two cinematic wonders to behold. Ian, once again, thank you for taking the time to come on to Silver Screeners today. It has been a genuine pleasure. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out Cult Connections. And of course, go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple or iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, that helps with the algorithms and it increases the show's visibility. Or if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be fantastic. Thank you for joining. Rock on. And as always, I'm Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. I'll see you. And remember... If you're ever selling flowers in the foggy streets of London in the evening and you see a caped stranger with slicked back hair staring at you fixedly like a mountain lion would look at a limping baby goat, don't invite him anywhere. Just put the damn flowers down and get the hell away from him.